1: Climate science and threats from climate change have been hot topics of conversation among the public as well as business and political leaders, but there seems to be a disparity in how climate scientists view what's causing this change and how the public understands and feels about the issue. This ultimately hampers efforts to improve the scientific field around climate and to develop effective solutions and policies to mitigate the risk. Our guest today is working to bridge that gap in understanding. Uh, Dr. Kerry Emanuel is the author of Climate Science and Climate Risk, A Primer. We'll discuss what the motivation was for authoring this book on climate science, as well as what he learned in the process and how we can help promote understanding of climate science and how it's affecting the world. Uh, Kerry, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. My pleasure. Well, you know, it's always an honor, first of all, for me to talk to Kerry Emanuel. He's truly one of the legends in our field of atmospheric sciences. And so uh, if you are a listener to the Weather Geeks podcast and aren't as familiar with Dr. Emmanuel Emanuel, and I suspect you may be, let me just sort of affirm for you that we're talking to one of the giants in the field right now. And so it's an honor to have him on the podcast. I have to answer this question, even though you are one of the most eminent scholars in our field. It's the question we ask every Weather Geeks podcast guest. How'd you get into weather? What what was your interest? What got you started? Was it something as a kid, an experience, a storm? Oh, I was a
2: weather geek, a a thorough weather geek, like a lot of the listeners. And uh, according to my older brother, who's seven years older than than I am, I was, uh, even when I was uh, a, a toddler, one or two, if there was a thunderstorm, I would crawl over to the window and just look at it. So I guess I got a very early start on that. I was always fascinated with it and then later became interested in math and physics and found out that you could combine those interests. Yeah, so I I think your story
1: is so consistent with all of us that consider ourselves and embrace the term weather geeks. I mean, for me, it was my sixth grade science project and making weather instruments and saying, can I predict weather for my little town in Canton, Georgia? Uh, Let me give you a little bit of background on who Dr. Emanuel is. Um, He has his degree in Earth and Planetary Sciences uh, from MIT, a PhD in Meteorology from MIT. Uh, He spent some time at the Atmospheric Sciences Department at UCLA uh, in the late 70s and early 80s, and has been at MIT since, I believe, if that's correct, if I'm reading this correctly. Uh, Department of Earth, Atmosphere, and Planetary Sciences, where he's a professor, and he also has directed the Center for Meteorology and Physical Oceanography and chaired the program in Atmosphere, Oceans, and Climate. He's also the co-founder of the MIT Lorenz Center, which is a climate think tank, which fosters creative approaches to learning how climate works. And before we leave that, and I I kind of head off down into our discussion, could you just give the listeners a little one-on-one of the significance of who Lorenz is? Because I think many of us certainly know who he is, but many weather podcast listeners may not
2: Well, I um, regard Ed Lorenz, who I knew quite well, uh, was a colleague of mine, as as the uh, father of the third great scientific revolution of the 20th century behind general relativity and quantum physics. Um, He uh, really was the originator of the idea that Actual physical systems could be formally indistinguishable from systems which are not deterministic. That's a lot of words. But what it means is that there are systems, and we think the weather is one of them, that in principle, in principle, cannot be predicted beyond some finite time horizon, which for the atmosphere we think is around two weeks. It doesn't matter how good the models get, how perfectly we observe the system, there's an upper limit. And so it's actually also an important piece of philosophy. So I can't overstate the significance of Lorenz's uh, contribution there.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. And in fact, such a significant contribution at the AMS, the American Meteorological Society, uh, named one of its top awards in his honor, particularly for those um, because uh, we we know sort of his sort of framing and landmark thoughts in our field. But he was also an ex- excellent instructor. And also, if you know anything about sort of the notion of chaos and sort of this idea of butterfly flapping his wings, uh, if you've talked about that and thought about it, you didn't realize that you were talking about things that Dr.
2: Lorenz uh,
1: mentioned. Marshall, please.
2: let me add one one thing about please, please. Lorenz that most people don't know is he was a weather geek yeah he really was uh i would i would be sitting in my office and i would he was a very quiet shy man so sometimes i would just sense that he was behind me and i'd turn around and there he was Harry, <laughs> have you seen that 500 millivar trough today and he'd come and we'd have a long discussion he he was always, from a child, also very interested in the weather.
1: That, that's so fascinating to me because, again, I have this sort of image of Professor Lorenz or Dr. Lorenz in some regard, but it's affirming to know that uh, uh, had this podcast existed in that time, he might have been interested in coming on Weather Geeks, too. So uh, getting sure back to you, uh, <laughs> you know, you talked about the things that kind of got you into this, and it sort of from an early age. Um, as you moved on in your sort of career, maybe as a young student and so forth, uh, even though you kind of went into math and physics and other areas, was there always some weather phenomena or process that really sort of stuck out stuck out to you as sort of motivating some of your interest? Or you were you more of a generalist?
2: Well, I think there were phenomena that I was particularly interested in. I had an early fascination with tornadoes and um Right out of uh, graduate school, I spent a um, half a year in uh, in Norman, Oklahoma, with the University of Oklahoma, and um, filming actual tornadoes uh, with the great tornado chaser uh, Howie Bluestein, who was a friend and colleague of mine at MIT. And so I really got my uh, I got my fill of severe storms and uh, tornadoes that way but um i never really did much research in that area and i went on more into tropical meteorology after that
1: yeah i was going to say at least as i was coming along in the late 80s early 90s as a young student graduate student at florida state i i knew of your work in tropical meteorology most and uh, I, we're not going to talk as much about that today in this particular uh, podcast but hmm. I would I'm not I'd be remiss if I don't take advantage of having one of the world's foremost experts on tropical meteorology uh, on weather geeks to talk about what your thoughts were on the 2020 hurricane season and your framing in terms of climate change. I know you've done work talking about sort of the latitudinal shift toward uh, in terms of intensity and some other interesting things. Some of your work is foundational, if you'd like to share that in terms of how we think about energy and energetics of, clim- of, of tornadoes and so forth. So just give me your sort of thoughts on what you're seeing with hurricanes, tropical cyclones uh, within the midst of shifting and changing climate.
2: Well, it's a very, very interesting question. In fact, it's fair to say that my interest in climate actually grew out of my interest in hurricanes because I had developed a a theory that basically says, given a thermodynamic environment, basically the temperature of the ocean and the temperature of the atmosphere, you you can theoretically derive an upper bound on how strong the winds can be in a hurricane. And I did that in the mid 80s and quickly realized that that bound had to go up. Uh, if you warm the climate uh, with putting greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So I actually made a prediction back in 1987 that we should begin to see hurricanes that were more intense than hurricanes we'd ever seen before. And I think the observations are beginning to say that. But you had asked about the 2020 season in the Atlantic. And, you know, I think it's very important to remind people that only about 12 percent of the world's tropical cyclones occur in the Atlantic. Uh, And the Atlantic is a very special place. And there's no question that almost every metric of hurricanes, frequency, intensity, and so forth, has risen in the Atlantic since the 1980s. But this is an important, but most of us don't think that really is a response specifically to greenhouse gases. There might be a little bit of that in there. But it's becoming more and more apparent to more and more researchers that this is actually another man-made effect, or the cessation of another man-made effect. Back starting in the 50s, we really started ramping up air pollution that results from fossil fuel combustion, specifically uh, sulfate aerosols. And it's turning out that an indirect effect of those aerosols um, Uh, admitted from industrialized countries in North America and Europe principally, was to cool off the Sahara, uh, reduce the African monsoon, reduce the rainfall, and put a lot more African mineral dust in the air, which in turn cooled the Atlantic. And so we are are reasonably confident now that the hurricane drought in the Atlantic in the 70s and 80s was a man-made phenomenon. And what we've been seeing since then is a recovery from that, as clean air acts have gotten rid of most of those sulfate aerosols. So it is a fascinating story. Um, it's probably not a natural oscillation that many uh, researchers believed it was, although there are natural oscillations as well, but not that. That that was almost certainly a man-made phenomenon.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting because I remember after the 2005 hurricane season, and that certainly that was a very active season, uh, the only other season other than 2020 where we made it into the Greek alphabet for naming, there was this big debate at all the conferences, AMS and AGU. Uh, the Is it the Atlantic Multidecadal Oscillation? Is it climate change? Is it both? And so it's really interesting to see that over time in the last uh, decade or so, Uh, The science started to clarify this aerosol effect, which is something I think many weather geeks podcast listeners may not realize we hear a lot of talk about greenhouse gases and methane and carbon, carbon dioxide. But aerosols are a very important part of our climate system as well. Uh, are you still finding or is your work still in this space uh, where you're looking at sort of the the poleward intensification of hurricanes? Is that still something that you see is happening? And also, I want to get your thoughts on whether we're seeing more rapid intensification.
2: Well, it's a very uh, good uh, point, Um as far as the poleward migration, that I would I would credit Jim Cosson, my my colleague at Wisconsin, for for really leading that work. I helped a little bit with it, but that's really his work. And I think um, it's it's being tested by others, and it's it's proving to be fairly robust. The latitudes at which tropical cyclones reach their peak intensity seems to be uh, increasing in both hemispheres. Um, I've been um, Interested in uh, another aspect of tropical cyclones uh, from the point of risk? I think we have to remember that although we weather geeks always think of them primarily as wind storms, in fact most of the fatalities and much of the damage come from water—either the storm surge or rain-induced flooding, or both in combination—and so um, that and rainfall and you also mentioned the rapid intensification are actually more sensitive to climate change than the peak intensity is and we don't even know what's going to happen to the frequency of storms that's a still a very hot and unsolved issue in science Uh, but but it's there's a strong consensus that the um amount of rain produced by hurricane all other things being equal is going to go up a lot there's evidence that it is uh, sea levels rising, which makes the storm surge uh, more dangerous and more common, um, and of course the change in the storms themselves. So uh, we are beginning to see signs in the data, as predicted, that rapid intensification is becoming more frequent, and this is going to uh, one of the interesting questions is, is this actually going to start decreasing the skill of hurricane forecasts, having nothing to do with anything going on with observations or forecasters, but just the climate change itself may make hurricanes harder to predict. Uh, And then there's the rain, and we're very, very uh, worried about that.
0: Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news.
1: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Professor Kerry Emanuel from MIT, one of the foremost experts in weather and climate in the world. And so uh, this is a special show. I, I kind of put a sort of a gold star on certain guests, uh, not that most all guests are, are not equally important. We, they are, and I value everyone. Uh, but, but this is certifiable legend in our field. So it's an honor to talk to him. And I want to talk to you now, um, Dr. Emanuel, I know him as Kerry, I'm a colleague, uh, about your new book, Climate Science and Science Risk, a Primer. So give give the listeners a, an overview of this book. What Why'd you write it? And what was your goal?
2: Well, actually, it's more of a pamphlet than a book. It's never actually been published as a, as a book. But I'll tell you why I wrote it. Um, I had been doing some work uh, with a colleague of mine in the business uh, world um, uh, who works out of New York and is very interested in things like carbon taxes and so forth. And he said to me once, you know, Carrie, I have a lot of of well-educated business colleagues who aren't scientists, really, but they're smart people. And they really would like to know about the science, but they don't know where to turn. There's the IPCC reports, which are excellent, but they're very, very large and voluminous and they have a fairly narrow purpose. But what about just the... So he actually asked if I would write such a thing and I said, well, that sounds like an interesting challenge. And I did. And um, it's, uh, he was generous. I mean, we just originally published it as a printed pamphlet he could hand out to his associates. And uh, he graciously allowed us to just post it, uh, which I do on my website, so anybody can download it and read it. And it's just that it's a it's an overview of the science of climate change. It just tries to lay out the basic principles. And we now have a web based primer. I don't know if you've seen it, uh, but it's, I have a, not. It, it, uh, it's it's climate. What is it? Called? I'm trying to remember the address. It's. Um, climate primer mit or something like that but if you go to the mit website you can find it and it's it mit actually hired a professional web design company to turn that into Uh, and they did a terrific job i have to say i worked with them they did really nice pen portraits of all the great uh climate scientists through history like john tyndall and Svante Arrhenius and so forth, and it's very uh, it's very nice to read. So I recommend that.
1: Yeah, I would say if I, I would say if you're a weather geeks listener, run to your a computer and, and Google and, and find that primer because again, I, there's not a better person that I could think of to really convey this uh, primer. Um, can you walk us through how um, you think about? And I, I'm in this space as well. But walk us through some of your thinking as you're trying to convey climate science information, which we know the complexity, to non-scientists. Uh, are there certain techniques and tools or approaches that you use?
2: Yeah, because uh, that's that's a n- nice question, Marshall, because I think uh, like anything else you do in the world, if you do it a lot, hopefully, if you're paying attention, you get better at it uh, or you get worse at it. But um when you talk to members of the public, I talk, talk to a lot of church groups, just you know, um, social groups, so forth, who are interested in the subject. Um, there, there tend to be you know medium-sized groups, maybe 30 to 100 people or so. And there are a lot of things I've learned from it. Um, w- one is that uh, the resi- the resistance of some people to accepting the science is not mostly because of any anti-scientific attitude. I mean, maybe there are a few people who just don't like science, but I don't encounter very many of them at all. It's more a feeling of helplessness and a feeling of deep pessimism about doing anything about it. They, you know, they think you want to take away all the things that that they like, you know, they're going to take away your big car or your SUV or something. And, And they get their backs up. And so, the number one thing I try to do as a way of paving the road for them to start accepting or thinking about the science is to give them a sense of optimism. And I always start off by saying, you know, we should treat this as like we treat any other problem and risk. And, you know, we we face risks all the time. We face risks, our house might burn down, we buy insurance. and I, I say something which sounds a little odd, uh, but it I think people like it. A lot. I say where there's a risk, there's opportunity, right? There's a, there's always opportunity, and uh, one should look at that as an opportunity. And and he says, let's let's forget about climate change for a minute. We've we've uh, whole all of society has profited immensely from the fact that we have fossil fuels, and we've managed to really increase per capita um, welfare and income through the use of energy. Nobody wants to get rid of that, but we also have to recognize there's a downside. You know, The World Health Organization says clearly that 8.7 million people around the world are dying prematurely, uh, mostly from respiratory problems that are a byproduct of fossil fuel. Can't we do better than that? Um, you know, we uh, back in the 19th century, um, people relied on horses to get around and horses were great in some ways, but they created, uh, let's call them residuals that started to fill the streets of New York and other cities to the point where it was unmanageable. Right. And we went to something better. Uh, And yeah, the people who made saddles and horseshoes complained bitterly, why wouldn't they? And we have to be mindful of that and not just brush them off, but we had to move forward. Well, we have to move forward now. If you give people a sense of optimism about that, that it's going to be better, not worse, that they're not going to have to give up things, but actually have more of what they want, uh, then their resistance to thinking about the science sort of evaporates. I guess that's the, the thing I've learned over the years
1: and as and as you were sitting uh, there talking I'm talking to professor Carrie Emanuel from MIT about all kinds of interesting things here and um, his new book or actually uh primer uh, he, he he says it's not necessarily a book in his online version uh, climate science and science risk a primer definitely make sure you check that out as you were sitting there talking it made me think about what we've experienced the last year with covid coronavirus and so forth and this idea of science and the intersection of science and the hope of vaccines so risk and opportunity. So I, 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 have you seen any parallels at all from your lens between sort of the coronavirus ordeal and science and even some of the denial of coronavirus, if you will, and climate change? I'm curious if you've had any thoughts.
2: Oh, yes. I mean, it's hard not to think about that <laughs> uh, because there are, are these things. First of all, I, I think you must agree with me on this. It's absolutely miraculous that science has advanced to the point that it could produce a vaccine in under a year. I mean, people who study these things, it used to take 10 years to do that. And so I think the uh, people who work in pharmaceuticals are the real heroes behind them. They're scientists, right? And uh, if it had not been, as David Baltimore uh, put it very nicely, if it had not been for pure curiosity-driven research, done in the 1970s and 1980s, we wouldn't be in a position to have developed a vaccine so quickly. But I wanna say one other thing about that. There is a difference, okay? And the difference is that as soon as this coronavirus really started to become prevalent, every rational human being started to think, oh my God, am I gonna get this? And, and am I going to die and not, or be very sick? It was very personal. It's a personal risk. It's a threat that threatens you personally immediately climate change is much more abstract or at least the way we climate scientists tend to present it. It's much more abstract. Oh my God, the temperature of the planet's going to go up three degrees. Well, you can't blame people for shrugging their shoulders and say, so what? Which are were three degrees warmer. Right. Speaking to you from Maine, I, I could certainly use it to be a little warmer up here, but um, we're not, we haven't been very good at, translating climate change down to personal risk. And I'm involved in an effort by a terrific nonprofit organization called First Street um, out of Brooklyn, New York that is trying to do this in a big way is to reduce it or bring it down to the personal level by showing people what it's doing to their property values. So basically what they've done remarkably, is to quantify flood risk for every single piece of private property in the entire continental United States. Can you imagine the work involved in that? Not only the current flood risk, but how it's projected to change over time. And so people, and you can go to realtor.com and you can look at the flood risk of any property that you want. And if you see that your property value is gonna go down or your insurance premium is gonna go up, becomes a little bit more like COVID, not quite as serious as that, but he said, my God, this is happening. Maybe I better sell, maybe I better tell my congressman that I'd like them to do something about climate change.
0: Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. slash podcast.
1: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm speaking with Carrie Emanuel. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepherd from the University of Georgia. Now, in this last segment, I, I want to just kind of go all over the place with you. Are there any things that you haven't explored in the world of weather and climate or atmospheric sciences that you've kind of wanted to, but just haven't gotten around to it?
2: Oh, all kinds of things. <laughs> thank, thank God. I mean, it's it's never a boring moment. I mean, I've always been fascinated by the phenomenon of atmospheric blocking, and I've never really done any research in that. But why is it that the weather gets stuck into patterns? You know, last uh, last winter, for example. Um, up here in Maine there was one uh, cyclone center right after another that went through the Gulf of Maine just an unbelievable number uh, compared to other years it's not that there were more cyclones in the on the planet or in the northern hemisphere since they all happened to come come here so it was a, an example of a pattern that got locked into place and we call that blocking and i don't understand it i don't any know anyone who scientists who claims to understand it i'm sure there's a lot of literature on it but that's just one of many things i love to try to to look into a
1: bit well it's, it's interesting that you talk about that because i i know there's been some debate in recent years about the arctic amplification and whether that's causing these sort of higher amplitude jet stream patterns that Perhaps lead to more uh, deeper, sort of low pressure systems, if you will, but also sort of more resilient ridges, if you will, as well. Do you, do you have a, because I know there's some controversy about that, but, you know, Jennifer Francis yeah. and her work, and then there are people like, no, that's not happening at all. Do you have an opinion on
2: that? Well, not a strong opinion. I certainly know about the controversy and I follow it and I follow her work too. Uh, certainly there's a theoretical basis for thinking that that might be happening. I think that we're a long way from showing that it is happening. Uh, but there's, it, it raises a bunch of very interesting issues about dynamics. That is, if you have a climate change that serves to concentrate, more concentrate the jet stream in some sense, does that make it more susceptible to, to very long wave disturbances that evolve slowly and maybe less susceptible to the short wave? All of those are really open research questions. There's another thing, though, that fascinates me, and that is um, maybe because I live in the northeast, is cold air. Now, that might sound very <laughs> strange. But, you know, we have these Arctic air outbreaks once in a while where it gets very, very cold. And if you go to map discussions, it's all about the dynamics. It's all about whether, you know, the dynamics arrange themselves so the cold air comes out of Canada, in our case, And there's sort of an assumption that there's an infinite reservoir of cold air in Canada, but there isn't. If you look at soundings and things, uh, it's almost always cold in the winter near the surface, but up deeper in the atmosphere, deep Arctic air isn't always there, it has to form. And if you actually look at radiation physics, it's not obvious at all that you can develop deep cold air from ordinary radiation physics, and there's a famous paper by your Georgia colleague Judy Curry from the early 80s, which says you really need to have ice crystals in the air to do that. So I think this is a relatively unexplored area in meteorology is it goes back to the Norwegians There are Norwegians were very interested in dynamics. But they also recognized that air mass formation was an important concept, and air mass formation has gone the way of Argyle socks in our field. Yeah. <laughs> I think it needs to come it needs to come back, especially with septic cold, uh, cold air, deep cold air. Yeah. Yeah. And that's an
1: interesting thought because actually, you know, I, I write a, a periodic uh, column for Forbes magazine on weather and climate topics. And I just got an email or a message in Twitter from someone asking me to write a piece on sudden stratospheric warming. Um, it's not exactly what you were just talking about, but there was all of this discussion about the sudden stratospheric warming and the weakening of the polar vortex, allowing breaches and so forth and cold air and intrusion, which was related to the Texas event that we experienced recently. And so it really brings to light, I think people do think sort of dynamics is very important, but there are all of these sort of thermodynamic and radiative effects as well. And that's why we as meteorologists, for those of you that are listening and that are younger, in those meteorology and atmospheric sciences programs like mine at the University of Georgia or at MIT, you get a heavy dose of thermodynamics and atmospheric physics. I'll be teaching an atmospheric physics class next spring. yeah, you know, this has really been a fascinating discussion as we draw to a close. I just wanted to kind of kind of peek into the carry manual window. What what kind of research projects are your your group uh, working on these days?
2: Well, so I have a, a student working very much on this connection between European sulfate aerosols, uh, Sahelian drought, and Atlantic hurricane droughts. I have another student uh, who's very interested in equatorial waves and trying to figure out the physics of their propagation in the upper stratosphere. Another student working on secondary eyewalls and hurricanes, and a student who's trying valiantly to understand how you flux heat and momentum through an ocean surface at 150 knots of wind when you no longer have an ocean surface, but an emulsion of bubble-filled water and spray-filled air. Uh, so they're they're doing hard, they're doing hard problems. They're all yeah. great students and yeah. Yeah.
1: I have to admit, yeah. As a, as a professor at university, we shout out to all graduate students. I know we have a lot of graduate students that listen to this. And I just want to on, on behalf of all of us that are advisors and mentors and professors, just thank the graduate students for their hard work in advancing research. Um, I, I think oftentimes uh, people don't realize how much of the important work and papers and new findings come from work that emerges from graduate students. So shout out to all graduate students. Uh, Carrie, are, there, are you on social media or have any websites
2: that you can point people to? Oh, well, I'm really bad at that. I'm sorry. I'm not <laughs> on Facebook. I was on at the request of my son for a while, but then the Facebook page started sending random emails to people, yes. uh, not nice emails. It wasn't me. Oh, sure, I sure. I uh, have to shut this down. And I've never been on Twitter. Uh, but of course, I have a, a homepage at MIT. And all kinds of things on it that might be of interest, like our, you know, routine hurricane intensity forecast that we've been doing for about 20 years, or on there. Um, so obviously, I invite people who are interested to visit that page. But I'm not, I'm not big on social media, I'm afraid.
1: Absolutely, well, definitely. I mean, I'm sure if you just Google Carrie with a K Emanuel, and you can you can find that website because there are there are some really interesting things on there. Now, before we get out of here. I've got to do something that we do every podcast. It's called our Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Joseph Trujillo Falcone. He's a graduate research assistant at the Storm Prediction Center in Norman, Oklahoma. Given his location, it's no surprise that his favorite type of weather phenomena are tornadoes, with his most memorable being the Moore-Oklahoma tornadoes of 2013. Joseph is currently focusing his research on creating translation frameworks and expanding resources for Spanish-speaking communities in the United States. If you or someone else you know is deserving of being the Geek of the Week, be sure to check out our social media pages. Uh, Kerry Emanuel, it's been such an honor to have you on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Marshall. Always great to see you. Same, likewise. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll see you next time on Weather Geeks.